Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As of next week, I will have been here on staff for exactly six weeks. Six weeks. Six months. It feels like longer than six weeks. Six months. By now, I'm in a bit of a routine. There are people I see on certain days. During the week, the person I see most regularly around the site, apart from Mike, is the tireless Gary McNamara. Many of you know Gary. As you know, Gary does all manner of things around the church site. How do I know that Gary has been at work when I turn up here? Well, a lot of the times when I turn up, Gary's here. I see him doing work, but lots of other times I don't see Gary, but I can tell he's been here. I can tell that Gary has been at work. There are telltale signs. If it's Monday morning, those back pews which we turn around every single week have been turned around the right way. If it's Tuesday morning, in the hall behind there, the tables and chairs are set up for Mari Robertson's discipleship group. If I come in on a Saturday morning, the black chairs are set up for 9am service the next day. And when I go into my office, next to my desk, my box of recycling is emptied. But without fail, it is put back the opposite way to how I have it aligned to my desk. (laughs) Without fail. And when I look down and see that empty recycling box turn 90 degrees to the way that I have it, I think to myself, ah, Gary has been at work. Gary has been at work. In a church, how do you know that God has been at work. Don't overthink that comparison. How do you know that God has been at work? What are the signs? What are the things you look for? What's the proof that God is at work in a church's life? Is it the intensity and the passion of the singing and worship? Perhaps. Perhaps that's a sign that God's at work. Is it the size of the church? When it's really big, is that a sign that God is at work in that church? Maybe. As we come to the end of 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul is essentially answering that same question. Because the question of, is God at work? Has God been at work? Has essentially formed the dialogue between Paul and the Corinthians. They want to know, really Paul, is God at work in us? Is God at work in you? How do we know? And so Paul, as he writes at the end of this letter, he effectively sums up and he draws together everything he's previously said. And for Paul, the proof of God's work in the local church, especially as it arises in the Corinthian situation, is found primarily in two areas. And they are two areas that I believe directly apply to us. The two proofs that God is at work. There may be more, but in this passage, Paul kind of breaks it down into two. And the first proof that God is at work is the mature faithfulness of the leader. It's seen in the leadership and how it's conducted. After their time apart and after Titus's positive visit and through the course of writing this letter, Paul senses a tentative reconciliation with the Corinthians. And so you'll see there in verse 14, he outlines his plans to visit them again. He says, now, now I'm ready to come to you this third time. But Paul knows that this church, it doesn't fully trust him yet. So he goes on to say in verse 14, I will not burden you. For I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul's not after their riches. Paul doesn't want their resources. Paul wants their relationship. God has worked through Paul to bring the Corinthians about 
as it were, as believers and as a church. He founded their church by bringing them the good news of Jesus. Their relationship with God points to the reality of God's work in their lives and the reality of God's work through Paul. And so Paul says, I don't want your resources, I want you. And because of this work, Paul sees the Corinthians in a deeply personal way. He, just, he sees them as his spiritual children. And so what does Paul's faithful leadership looks like? Look like? It looks like Paul being a parent to the Corinthians. This is not the first time Paul's used this language. In this letter, in chapter 6, verse 13, Paul said to them, I speak to you as to my children. Open your hearts wide to us. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, a year or so earlier, in chapter 4, he said, In Christ, I became your father through the gospel. And as a parent, Paul's saying to them, My obligation is to you, not the other way around. That's not how it works. I'm a parent. And if, as a parent, if I want or need something, I don't ask my children, Josh and Ellie, Hey guys, can you spot me some cash? Or, I need you to save up for this for me with your meagre $1 a week. I don't do that. That's not their job. That's my job. As long as they are under my care, that's my role as their parent, as their provider. And Paul is saying, that is our relationship. That is what I've done for you. And that is what I will continue to do for you. I love you. I provide for you. And that's what he says in verse 15, isn't it? I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more... Am I to be loved less? Even if it's not appreciated by the Corinthians. He loves them and he will spend for them. He labours free of charge among them. He visits to them. It costs money. He's got to live, but he supports out of his own resources. And he says, gladly, I will be spent for you. The word Paul uses to be spent is to expend oneself. The idea is to the point of self-sacrifice. Such is Paul's commitment to his converts, to his spiritual children. And you only have to look on that same page, page 1070, where we were last week, to see the list of Paul's ministry hardships, to know that he is not exaggerating. He is willing to sacrifice himself for them. This is his parental care. You know all this, Paul says. You know this. Paul hasn't burdened them financially or deceived them financially. Verse 16. He hasn't taken advantage of them. He, neither he nor Titus nor any other ministry colleague, he says that in verses 17 and 18. Instead, Paul has provided them with generous, self-sacrificial, fatherly care. That is in direct contrast to the, to the self-serving uh, domination of the super-apostles. And Paul's fatherly care, it's not just great in and of itself. It's great because it points beyond itself. Paul's fatherly care for the Corinthians, this sort of leadership reflects what? It reflects the generous, self-sacrificial care of our true spiritual father, God himself. That is how God loves his people, his children. Sometime after this letter is written, Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said a similar thing, speaking of their relationship to God and whether the Romans wondered whether they could come to God as Father. And he writes in chapter 8 famously, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? That is the love of your Father. And I love you like that, Paul says. 
That is my leadership. That is the sort of leadership that shows that God is at work in Paul and in his ministry at Corinth. Faithful, mature, parental leadership. What do we look for in our leaders? I don't think that's the sort of characteristic we are naturally drawn to. But let me tell you, all the, all the ministry gifts, all the charisma, all the strategic planning in the world cannot substitute for that. Paul is a parent to them. But secondly, Paul is also a builder. In his parental concern, Paul's faithful leadership, it's also demonstrated in what he desires for the Corinthians. What does he write in verse 19? He says, You have thought all along that we were defending ourselves to you. No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Now, Paul has, of course, throughout the course of this letter, had to defend himself at times. But that's not the substance of the letter. That's not the whole reason he's written it. This letter hasn't been an act of mere self-justification. Fundamentally, it's been an exercise in illumination. He wants to show the Corinthians, helping them to see how God has been at work building them up, making them stronger in every aspect of Paul's ministry, every single aspect in in his unimpressive preaching, in his strong letter writing, in his heartfelt encouragement, and in his stern rebuke. Everything is for their building up. The rebuke is understandably the most bitter pill to swallow. It always is, isn't it? It's what likely made Paul's previous visit to Corinth so painful. But Paul says, if it's necessary, I will do it again. That's actually for your building up. You're built up by both encouragement and admonishment. He writes in chapter 13, verse 2, I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. Like a loving parent, Paul cares enough for the Corinthians. God cares enough for the Corinthians to correct and discipline them when they need it, even when they don't want to hear it. Parents, in their better moments, in their better moments, discipline for the same reason. It's not to make their children feel bad. It's not just to release some anger because that makes us feel better. In our better moments, it's to show them what's right and show them what's wrong so that in the future they will flourish, knowing the difference. For this reason, it's rightly said that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy, not caring at all. If you don't care for someone, you don't care if they're on a path to destruction. That's poor parenting. That's poor leadership. That's ultimately the attitude of the super apostles that they have demonstrated towards the Corinthians. But not Paul. No, by Christ's power, Paul will not lead the Corinthians to their potentially self-destructive ways. If discipline is needed, Paul is authoritative enough and he's faithful enough to exercise it. And this is a role our church leaders have to exercise. Let me tell you, it is never desirable. It's rarely trouble-free or conflict-free. But when faithfully exercised, it's essential for the building up of God's people. God works through those things. Now, of course, those of us here with more tender consciences, if I could put it that way, need to hear this a particular way. Perhaps you're someone who finds yourself more overburdened by guilt and the prospect that a leader would rightfully be 
seemingly guilting you more by disciplining you is really understandably puts you at Ill, Ill at ease. That is not the point of what Paul is saying here. It's balanced by encouragement. Maybe you're someone who has lacked encouragement in your life. That whatever the circumstances, the balance has always been out. And you hear this and that is hard to hear. And certainly that sort of leadership that's exercised entirely in a critical way is not what Paul is painting here. That's not been Paul's relationship with them, the Corinthians. But Paul says that everything is for our building up, the encouragement and, if necessary, the admonishment. That's Paul's first proof, the faithfulness of the leaders. Can the super apostles make that claim that they have been those sorts of leaders of the Corinthians? Has God been at work through their ministry in the same way that he has been through Paul's? No, Paul has been that faithful leader to them. They can know God has been at work in them through Paul. That's the first proof, the mature faithfulness of the leader, in this case Paul. And the second proof is the mature faith of the believer. The mature faith of the believer. Paul goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 13, he says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. For do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Have you ever done one of those online quizzes like on Facebook? You know, like it's genre specific, like you've got a particular band or artist or movie or something like that. You test yourself, don't you? You test yourself to see if you are in the faith, as it were. Maybe it's Beatles music or Seinfeld or Marvel movies. Your knowledge reflects your true devotion, your faithfulness. But, of course, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to examine themselves, it's not like that. It's not like taking an online quiz. It's not like taking any knowledge test. It's not a test you can pass or fail based on what you do or do not know. But it is about self-examination and being honest with yourself. And Paul is saying if the Corinthians would only look inward, they would see the evidence of God's work in them through Paul. Christ himself is in them. Christ himself by the Holy Spirit. How do you know that God is at work in a church? For one, the existence of genuine Christian believers. Let me tell you, that's not a given. That in churches there are genuine Christian believers, even making up the majority of the church. I have friends in ministry who have discovered that. So the existence of genuine Christian believers in the first place is evidence of God's work. And that's a bit obvious, of course. But not just the existence of genuine Christian believers, maturing Christian believers, those who are growing in their faith. As Paul says in verse 9, what does he pray for them? He says, we pray that you become fully mature. And he goes on to urge them in verse 11, become mature. But what does that look like? What does it look like to become mature? What does fully mature faith look like? Well, remember Paul ties it here to self-examination. And he's kind of evoking Psalm 139, which we use as the basis for our common prayer this today. Famously, that psalm says at the end of it, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. By self-examination, we're inviting God to reveal in us what we know to be true. About where we stand with Him, about our desires, our shortcomings. 
what about themselves and their lives should the Corinthians examine to discern how God is at work maturing them? What about ourselves and our lives should we examine to discern how God is at work maturing us? Paul gives three areas. The first is the area of morality. Paul says in verse 7, Now we pray to God that you do nothing wrong. You do nothing wrong. That seems a bit ambitious. Is Paul advocating for some sort of sinless existence as if, as if that were possible, this side of glory? No, of course he's not doing that. But what he is doing is making the connection between repentance and the fruit of repentance, the outworking, the natural product of repentance in our life experience. What the Bible calls sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, more holy as the Holy Spirit does His work in us, as we mature spiritually. If God is at work in your life, not only will you seek forgiveness in the first place at the cross, that will be your starting point, but you will, going on from there, desire to live a life that reflects the character of God that's been granted to you in Christ. If you don't desire that, that's a problem. It's a problem of maturity. And Paul says, examine yourselves. See if that's the case. See what your attitude personally is to sin. And that is something that we can, as a church community, to an extent discern among ourselves as well. Of course, this is not a call to be just judgmental about every other person's mistakes. We are all recipients of grace. We're all redeemed sinners on a journey of sanctification. But a church that fails to take sinful behaviour seriously, whether it's through actively saying that's not a big deal or just not addressing it, sweeping it under the carpet, turning a blind eye, that would seem to be living proof that God is not at work there. And certainly the sad history of many a church where sinful behaviour has been allowed to compound and grow and then ultimately utterly destroy that church is testament to that. That was Paul's great concern back in 1 Corinthians. A year or so earlier, sexual immorality was rife in that church. People were going off to sleep with temple prostitutes. A man has his father's wife and you're okay with this. Paul's urging the same Corinthians, don't let that be true of you now. As mature believers, take sin seriously. That is evidence that God is at work maturing you. Do we take sin seriously? Secondly, perhaps the most challenging area of maturity for the Corinthians, one which seems to have been at the root of many of their problems in the short period of their church's life, is the virtue of humility. In chapter 12, verse 20, you see Paul describe them there variously as jealous, selfishly ambitious, arrogant. They've been unwilling to submit to Paul's rightful authority, not just as an apostle of Jesus, but as their founder. Why? Why were they unwilling to submit to that? Because they lacked humility. They came from a bombastic, self-glorifying culture and this virtue seems to have taken a long time to have grown in them. But that's a problem. Why? Because humility characterizes the Christian faith. The Christian faith is, faith is defined by humility. The humility, first and foremost, of Jesus himself to take on human flesh in the first place. And then to submit to death, even death on a cross. 
And then the humility that God works in the life of the Christian believer to recognize our need and to submit wholly to the salvation that is available only in Jesus' sacrifice. The humility to submit to Jesus' lordship. And so a hallmark of maturing faith, of growing faith, is increasing humility. A greater willingness to submit to the will of others and to do so joyfully. To allow ourselves to be weak so that others may be strong. Otherwise, how are we, how are we going to f- hold on in full reliance to Christ if we're not able to be humble? That takes humility. How are we going to serve others regularly and joyfully? That takes humility. How do we go with humility? Do we want what we want? Or do we look to the needs of others? Do we ever ask what Jesus wants? Do we ever question if it's in conflict with what we want? Are we humble enough to accept that? Or to accept that others' needs may need to come before our own? They're the questions that Paul raises for the Corinthians. And says that God is at work in your maturity if you are humble and growing in humility. And finally, flowing from humility, the third and final area of maturity that Paul identifies is that of unity. He writes in verse 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. I think unity is a tricky thing for us to grasp, isn't it? Often we think we've got it. We think we've achieved it, but then often what we realize, all we've achieved are superficial binders that give the impression of unity. Maybe they're social or cultural commonalities, you know, the work that we do, or the pastimes that we pursue, or the people who are around the same age of us. And if we're in a church, I think we look around, if we have enough links there, we think, yeah, we're a pretty unified bunch. Or maybe it's our religious practice, what we do when we get together in church, how church should look and sound and how we should act. And if we get enough people who think the same way, I think we go, yeah, we've got unity here. Is that the sort of unity that Paul is speaking of here, that he's trying to draw out? Because certainly the Corinthians struggled in this area. Much of 1 Corinthians is spent on the problem of disunity. Personal ambition, factions, inclusion and exclusion on the basis of particular spiritual gifts and by the time of 2 Corinthians that's continued possibly even worsened under the influence of the divisive new leaders what does Paul say Paul says be at peace be at peace with one another and what the God of love and peace is with you God is at work in you as you are at work in being peaceful with one another. Verse 11. And so Paul says, be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. Not mindlessly agree with one another, uncritically, but identify the core truths that you do share. Talk about it. Work on it. Be at peace with one another. And even greet one another with a holy kiss concrete expression of the fellowship you share in Christ. Now that's something that's kind of dropped out of our particular cultural interpersonal relations, the holy kiss. I'm not sure how comfortable most of us would feel if we greeted one another with a holy kiss, but it is worth thinking about on what basis you have unity here with people at Minchinbury and what concrete actions you do that give expression to that unity. 
Is it truly because you see yourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, bought with the same blood, all working to grow in Christ's likeness? Is that what brings you together? I hope it is. I hope it's what brings you together here on a Sunday night. I hope it's what brings you together in your discipleship groups or in the smaller circles of friends in which you operate. Or is it more superficial reasons? You happen to do the same work or you like the same sorts of things. And if those things were taken away, you might have that moment where you realize, actually, I'm not sure I really want to go to church. I don't really feel like I have much in common with the other people around me. That's not true unity. True unity is experiencing something of the peace and fellowship that God has within himself, which he has made possible by saving us into a relationship with him through Jesus. So how do we know that God has been at work in the church, that he continues to be at work in the church, in the Corinthian church, in our church here, in all churches? Proof one, the mature faithfulness of the leader. Are our leaders self-sacrificing like the Heavenly Father who called them and seeking to build up people in Christ? And proof to the mature faith of the believer. Are we maturing? I believe we are. I believe these things are true of us here at Minchinbury. In my short six months, I rejoice that what I see is God's hand at work amongst us. But, like you, I also know that we're all works in progress as individual believers, as church leaders in varying capacities, as a church family. Such is the nature of maturity. It's a process. And it's a process we'll never get to the end of in this life. Only when we go to be with Jesus will we experience that true spiritual maturity. One thing many Anglican church services used to conclude with was something called the grace. It was said together at the end of a service. If you're familiar with it, you'll know that the grace is lifted almost word for word from the final verse of this letter. Verse 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The blessing that Paul gives to a church with whom he's had all sorts of ups and downs, such is his fellowship with them. Isn't it a wonderful way for Paul to finish this letter? A letter that seeks to remind every one of its readers that all blessings that come our way, spiritual, forgiveness, spiritual restoration and non-spiritual earthly comfort all blessings are acts of grace they are gifts from an infinitely powerful God who knows our needs and who meets us in our weakness even enters into it in order to bring us to bring countless others into a safe secure and forever relationship with him may God help us to grow in love and fellowship as we hold ever more tightly to that grace and as we hold his grace out ever more boldly to our community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made us one with you, one with the Father. We thank you for dying on our behalf and we thank you for rising to new life, that we have a hope of eternity. 
help us to see how you have been at work in our lives as individuals, in our life here as a church. Help us to see true godly leadership for what it is and rejoice in it and support it. Help us to rebuke it when it's not as it should be. And help us to see the ways in which you have been maturing us. Grow in us a desire to live your way out of thankfulness for who we now are in you. Amen. If you're a note taker, you might like to finish up taking your final bit of notes. Maybe there's something you feel you need to do this week. If there's a particularly concrete action 